You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement material. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. This episode is about two New York pirate radio stations, both active in the 1990s. We're going to share some audio from an event at Interference Archive featuring David Gorin, creator of the Brooklyn Pirate Radio Sound Map, and DJ Centronics, the founder of the unlicensed hip-hop station WBAD. But first, we'll take a look at the history of Steal This Radio, the Lower East Side station based in an illegal squat. This is ABC No Rio, one of the early broadcasts we did at ABC No Rio, maybe the first broadcast, actually. Oh, here's our little mission statement. It says, Steal This Radio, a triumphant radio. Silas Radio is a micro-broadcasting community radio station dedicated to serving the needs of the Lower East Side. Starting in the winter of 1995 with the mobile Friday night broadcast parties, the station is now broadcasting seven nights a week. SDR is non-commercial, anti-profit, and all-volunteer collective, offering an ever-expanding menu of diverse programming. SDR will continue to be an accessible voice for all in an age of strict corporate control of our media and to be a strong force in the battle to preserve our beautiful and vibrant neighborhood against the real estate and government dominance. The airwaves belong to all of us. Let's use them. And then you got the contact info. Oh, we haven't seen this one yet. Look at this. This is a beautiful flyer. That's an Eric Joker drawing. Oh, God, I haven't looked through this stuff in forever. This is DJ Arrow Chrome, one of the founders of Steal This Radio. Okay, so my roommate, Dave Lawrence, who um, I lived with at 7th Street Squat, he and I worked together in Blackout Books, which was anarchist bookstore on Avenue B. And this was like sort of early 90s. And, and it was like a collective-run anarchist bookstore. It was a great place. It was like the hub for activism and organizing in the, in the neighborhood or one of them as well as like places like Charles El Bojillo, ABC No Rio. We both worked at Blackout, and through probably through his connection at Blackout, he got some information about how you could like build your own micro-radio uh, broadcasting unit. Transmitter, that's the word. <laughs> so, so he had information about the transmitter, and he says, look, I have this information about this pirate radio station. This is kind of something we had talked about a little bit in the past and Dave was like pretty good with electronics and stuff and I was an organizer like I had organized a traveling circus I was doing a lot of organizing around the gardens um, you know and, and saving the squats and all that so um, we were a good duo to start this thing up so he asked me what I thought about it I thought it was an excellent idea but yeah so we would have these early these early meetings at Blackout books and and at some of the squats and um, we, you know, we endeavored to build the transmitter and then we built uh, like an antenna out of um, copper piping, plumbing piping and um, like threaded rods that had like a kind of a cross formation and you would extend it out and you could kind of like unscrew it all and it would be like this series of kind of pipes that you would carry around and then you would like you're gonna be like climbing on the top of the roof of the squat and then like mounting this antenna like on one of the vent pipes or something on the top of the building and and then uh stringing wires down to one of the apartments and then um and then you know a bunch of the people that 
uh, would kind of all know, like, okay, this week it's going to be at, you know, 7th Street, or this week it's going to be at Umbrella House, or... So every week it was stuff like that, and it was just, it was so inspiring. I mean, there was so much positivity, and people started listening, you know, and we'd, we'd uh, every now and then we'd figure out a way to get a phone line. Of course, there were all landlines now. There was no cell phones back in those days, right? We knew it was illegal, and we knew that the FCC would probably come after us at some point, and they did. But uh, sometimes we would get a phone line set up anyway and just do call-ins and stuff, so it was cool because we would realize that, you know, because we'd flyer to let people know that we were broadcasting and we realized, oh, people are listening, you know, and then every week, you know, more people would like hear about it and ask about it and come to the bookstore and, and eventually find out and get involved. And so it didn't take us long till we were adding. Uh, I think we went from one night a week to three nights a week. And then, you know, pretty soon within a few months, we were five nights a week. And then pretty soon with a few months, we were seven nights a week. And so after you went to seven nights a week, were you still moving around from week to week? No. By then, we had uh, we had settled down. I had convinced my building to let us clear out a um, a storefront. So we were, we were allowed to clear out this space on the ground floor of 7th Street, which was, which was full of debris, basically, and do the necessary renovation to make, like, a sound room and, like, a green room. Like, so there's a couple-room studio. But that was a big risky thing because the the moving around, you knew it was going to be pretty hard for them to, to track you if you kept moving. But once you stayed put, you know, it was a big risk that they were going to track you down. The activists and artists of the Lower East Side squats were building on the work of a previous generation, which included many Puerto Rican activists and the founders of Charas El Boillo. And so it was Chino and Armando that, that founded Charas and... Um, they were members of a, of a street uh, organization called A Real Great Society, and this would have been back in the late 60s into the 70s, and so they were part of the same movement that was connected with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords, um, but they were called A Real Great Society, and they were a Puerto Rican organization, and what they ended up doing was actually taking over the Cristadora House, which is the, must be 20 stories or, or so, like the hugest building in the Lower East Side, basically. And so these guys took it over. And uh, right behind the Cristadora house was this giant school building uh, that became Charas. And basically, Armando Chino and their group ended up, and they were like kind of militant. And, you know, there was the vibe of the Panthers and everything out there already. So the city was pretty cautious with them. And they ended up negotiating with the city that they would exit the Cristadora house if they were able to turn the school that became Charas into a community center. And so they did. And so that became like really the hub and basis for the earlier generation of activism that, that my generation of eighties squatters and activists followed was like the Charas crew, you know, mostly Puerto Rican activists. Armando was, um, he was one of the founders and he and I got to be very good friends. And um, he actually, when, when we pull out the, the flyers for Steelers Radio will see that all the Steelers Radio benefit parties at the beginning were all at Charas. Not only did Steelers Radio have the support of community leaders, but they were part of a nationwide movement of micro radio stations. We were living in a world where there was increasing media consolidation. Clear Channel Corporation would maybe own like you know, a television station and and a couple of radio stations in a community. So, and then maybe another competitor would own one, but it was basically two or three media organizations in most cities. 
that had the monopoly on news, right, and information, right? And so being radical thinkers that we were, we recognized that having corporate media only, you know, going into the minds of the people was, was clearly not a good thing. And it was allowing for people to be manipulated. It was allowing for a lot of important topics to be buried and, and other topics that weren't important to be emphasized uh, and all the things that that came along with that. And so we were doing the station not just for our neighborhood. We were doing the station because we were part of a national movement that wanted to create a people's media. And we were reaching out to people in Philadelphia and in Boston and different areas in the on the East Coast and encouraging people, more and more people, to start micro radios and they did. You know, just within a year or two span, it, we went from, you know, hardly knowing anything about it or hearing anything about it or hardly existing to like there being micro radio stations all over the country. And really, I give Stephen Dunifer out in Berkeley a lot of credit because he was the one who was like, had figured out how to make these kits basically and was bold enough to make these kits and start sending them out to people through the mail. I think you couldn't sell the whole transmitter because it would be mail fraud or something, but but if you sold just the part of it and then they got a couple little ancillary parts locally and then made their own antenna and he'd have instructions for all that, and then you too could be a community radio station. Suddenly we had the FCC bulk up barging into like, you know, community centers across the country, kicking indoors, confiscating transmitters, arresting people and trying to uh, stick stick them with all kinds of ridiculous charges. What emerged when the FCC started coming after the movement is that there was a whole other layer of legal strategy which then kind of kicked in and what happened was in instead of just taking their fines or their jail time, the pirate radio broadcasters would lawyer up with pro bono free speech lawyers that would actually appeal the cases. And so there was there was a bunch of cases pending, like already starting to get up to the top tier of federal courts on these appeals where it was like microbroadcasters versus the FCC. So we were seeing this. And at the same time, we are getting information that the FCC is kind of trying to track us down. They've been spotted. They're getting closer. We were moving around. And so at some point we had we had a meeting and, and we decided that we had the support of um, Center for Constitutional Rights and um, and then Peter Spagnolo, who had worked with another one of the lawyers, Stanley Cohen, he had some legal knowledge. So anyway, we had this meeting and what we decided to do was to actually uh, proactively sue the FCC to enjoin them from shutting our station down. So so we wanted to be proactive about it and try to preempt them from shutting us down, thinking that this would allow us to broadcast at least for a while while it played out. And it and it was and we were right. And so it was a successful strategy. So that was so we were the first one to do like the proactive lawsuit against the FCC. And I think we were like we were then the like around the seventh or eighth case in federal court now. So we were really like you know, we were really going at the FCC at the highest levels. But at the same time, the FCC was going after the station. Before we did the the lawsuit, the preemptive lawsuit against the FCC, we had heard that the FCC had brought back their top man out of retirement, uh, who was like famous because he had busted a big pirate radio station in the late 80s that was broadcasting in neutral international waters off the coast of New York. 
So his name was Judah Monsbach, and they had brought Ju- Judah Monsbach out of retirement to get Steelers Radio, right? So he, he comes in, and by then, we're seven nights a week. We're in 7th Street, and I mean, the broadcasts were amazing. We had brought in this local hip-hop cruise, and I remember they would have these shows where they'd have these ciphers with like six or eight guys, and they would just all be like rapping like just nonstop, so he's playing beats. It was like news hip-hop style, and they would talk about everything going on in the neighborhood, like in the hip-hop rap. So you had stuff like that going on, and you had like the um, jungle drum and bass scene emerging in New York at that time. So these were great days at 7th Street. I mean, it was seven nights a week. We had a phone line in. We had a nice studio set up with turntables and a great mixing board, and everything was permanently set up, so we didn't have to scramble and move the equipment every time we broadcast. It didn't last super long because Judah Monsbach used his triangulation and to figure out where our antenna was. But see, now Judah had the problem that it was a building with 17 apartments. How was he going to f- figure out which apartment it was broadcasting out of? Plus, it was a squat, so it's not so easy to just go in and like start knocking on doors or whatever. So what his, his plan was, which was a good plan, was to call up Con Edison, say, hey, I'm a federal agent, and I need you to send down a guy from Con Edison. We're going to go into the basement of this building, and we're going to cut the breaker of each apartment in the building during the broadcast so that he would identify which apartment uh, by the fact that it lost power and quit broadcasting when the breaker got tripped, and then he would be able to get his warrant and go and kick in the door or whatever. So they call the Con Edison guy up and the Con Edison guy says, no, there's there's no power in that building because of course it was a squat and the electricity was illegal. So <laughs> no record. So, so this is like, this was frustrating for Judah. It got to, to be the night where he showed up, where they showed up and the FCC was outside the building uh, and they had the Con Edison guy, and they had decided to try to do it anyway. And so whoever was on the air that time, which I think was Margaret, had to kind of vacate out the back door and like kind of blend into the building and whatever. And then I went down there, and I'm like with my kid, right? With a little baby, right? It's so funny because now I'm finally face-to-face with Judah Monsbach, and here I am, the voice that he's been listening to and trying to track down for all these months, and we're face-to-face, me, Judah, and the Con Ed guy, right? And we're pyroelectricity, of course, in our squat, right? So I go out there, and I'm like, yeah, hey, what, you know, what's going on here? You know, why, what's, what's all the commotion, you know? And uh, they're like, well... We've got an illegal radio station in here, and we're we're trying to we're trying to determine where it's broadcasting from, <laughs> and I and I kind of go, what you a radio station? What, what do you mean, like Howard Stern? What we got Howard Stern in the building? <laughs> and it was just hilarious, and and everybody got away, and and they didn't really know what to do, and they finally like found somebody in the building that would let them in the basement, but. It was an illegal system, and by that time the station was off, and so they were kind of like, oh, they were like you know, thwarted. And that was the precursor to the meeting in which we're like, okay, we're in crisis. You know, we know they're able to kind of zero in on where we are now. Da, da, da. It's only a matter of time till they like steal the transmitter. And then that's when we came up with the proactive lawsuit idea. And so we did. So we launched, we put together a, um, the lawsuit and then we put together an event to announce the lawsuit and this was going to be kind of our outing now to the FCC too, right? Because it was going to be a publicly announced event where the Steelers Radio was going to sue the FCC to enjoin them from 
shutting down the station, and then after that would be broadcasting openly and notoriously from that time on. And so we did that event to make that announcement at the stock exchange. They have the stock exchange building, and then like just kind of facing it, there's like this set of stairs, and then there's a statue, and he's kind of standing like with one hand in front of his chest and one hand kind of above his head. And so what we did was put our antenna in his hand and the transmitter in the other hand and actually broadcast our press conference in which we invited all the media to. And by this time, this was a big thing. This was in the national papers and the local papers and everything. So everybody came. We were like pirate radio broadcasting openly and notoriously on Wall Street at this press conference. And, uh, the moment when Judah Monsbach shows up at the press conferences and sees that the guy that he was talking to in front of the squad was indeed actually the guy that he wanted uh, was just priceless. It was around this time that Steal This Radio moved into the 6th Street Community Center. They invited us to rent a space, one of their rooms in their community center, and set up our antenna and so they were willing to take on the chance that, that they knew that the door might be kicked in, whatever, but they were willing to take that on. And so that was great. And so after that, that's when Steelers Radio moved into Sixth Street Community Center. And that was like the next, you know, year and change of the of the station. By that time, it seemed pretty clear that there was going to be legal micro radio. And so we figured, let that process play out, get a license and, and do it if that's what we wanted to do. Sure enough, the lawsuit and the strategy worked. And instead of coming and kicking in our doors, I think we had enough popular opinion and enough sort of goodwill in the public uh, combined with like maybe a decent legal case as well. And then combined, of course, with the movement that now had, you know, seven or so of these cases uh, challenging the FCC's right to shut down community radio. Because we were saying we were saying we have a right that the airwaves are public airwaves. And if we're not we're not stepping on another signal that we have a right to have community radio stations, that that was, that there was absolutely nothing wrong with that. And that, you know, maybe if they wanted to regulate it a little bit, but the idea that they would outlaw a community radio station, but allow these massive mega commercial stations, we just felt like that was absolutely antithetical to what the government was supposed to be doing in regulating the airways for the people. And so that was our case and it was a good one. You know what I mean? David Gorin has been involved in radio for over 25 years. His most recent project is the Brooklyn Pirate Radio Sound Map, an archival audio project that documents Brooklyn's unlicensed radio broadcasting. In April, he appeared at Interference Archive to talk about the map. He also had a conversation with DJ Centronics, the founder of WBAD, an unlicensed station which became known for playing music you couldn't hear on mainstream hip-hop radio. Here's an excerpt from the event. So what made you want to have your own station? And then it really seemed like you had an instinct for how to make a station and and get it. Yeah, I mean, um, I was really fascinated by it. And, you know, when I was young, I always listened to radio, you know, a lot of radio. um, And I enjoyed listening to stations, different stations. I would tune in 
to like the end of the dials and I used to listen to these little low power radio but I, I didn't know what they were I was young I just said wow you know they're playing music good music that you don't hear on the major uh, radio stations so I would you know I was very fascinated with that and um, you know that got me kind of into it when when I met somebody who was doing pirate radio I said wow this is great this is something I would like to do you know and so what were you playing at first because you, you were like a house DJ right time. well I started with house music I, you know because I, I, I love house music house music dance music and um, you know I started doing that and you know I saw that there was a struggle you know with with hip-hop where you know a lot of the you know music from the street wasn't being played on these major radio stations like Hot 97 and um, so you know, I said, right, I'm going to start a hip-hop station, and that's what I did. So that's when I brought in Dren, and I actually, I think he, I started the hip-hop, and then he called me up, and, and then, you know, he was interested, so I brought, I brought him on board. Yeah, uh, that's it. He couldn't quite remember. Right, how right. Yeah, I think yeah. he did call up, and then he was very interested, and I saw that he was, you know, really ambitious, that he, you know, he was, like, into the music. And, you know, so I brought him on. Right. You know? Now, if you listen to more of the story, you'll there's sort of the two different ambitions going on with right. with you wanted to keep the station going as long as you could. Right, that's and, right. And he wanted to go for sort of notoriety. Right, exactly. So, you know, at first when, you know, when I brought this hip-hop DJ in to do the hip-hop show, I didn't, I didn't tell him where the location was. What I would do is I would tell him to, you know, play a dot or, or mix a dot together his show, and then I would play it on the air. I wouldn't, I wouldn't let anybody to the, stu to the actual studio. So, you know, even the interviews that we did with artists, we, everything was outside the studio. So I kept, I kept it very private, very uh, secure, so no one knew where it was. And that's what I did. Right. What's What's interesting is you really went. You know, you prepared a show every week. What, right. what did What did it take to get the show together? And at what point did like the hip hop industry like say, "Hey, what What's going on here?" Well, you know, we what we did. You know, we would go to the uh, radio, um, the, to the record labels, to you know, and we would, you know, we would reach out. People would reach out to us. And they would give us their music, you know. They would have um, stuff that was, you know, um, like demos. Demos, and and so we would, you know, um, get ready to, you know, play all the, you know, independent music that that was out there, and, um, you know, we would do interviews, and we would do it outside the studio. We would get ready during the week, and then we would have the show on Sunday, you know. So. Right. Who are some of the people like um, I learned a lot about hip hop from doing the show? I, Big Punisher, Big right? Pun Big Pun. I mean, there was a lot of um, you know artists or you know that were very interested in what we were doing because they were they were like they were, they gave us a lot of love and respect because you know we were giving back to the hip hop community. You know, so um you know we had big pun we had uh, a lot of a lot of artists that would come in and you know interview and stuff like that and you know, it was it was great yeah you were um 
you had a staff. You had a, not yeah, just Dren, but you had other right. Other DJs. I had um, we had uh, two. I had two other hosts uh, who were friends of mine, and they would come to the studio. Those were the only guys that were allowed in the studio. Um, and you know, eventually, when I got to know Dren a little better, I brought him onto the station, and and I showed him the equipment, and he was fascinated. And um, that's what we did. Right. Um, there are a couple stories that either got cut for time or I didn't get in, so I'm just going to ask you. One of the things I think that was really cool is not just were you having you know, people who were in studios making artists, but people would call up and freestyle on the air. That's right. So tell yeah. me about that. Yeah, I mean, there were people who, you know, wanted to show their talent and, you know, and what we would do is we would play instrumentals and we would, um, you know, they would call it kicking a freestyle, you know, and they would, you know, sing over the beat on the actual, uh, you know, telephone. And um, we would, you know, we, we did that a lot. And, um, you know, gave people a chance to actually, you know, express themselves on the radio, on the radio, over the phone, you know. And you could hear from the calls that people were, you know. Yeah, oh yeah. It was like that, the, the soundtrack for the party that was right, going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little about, or tell us a little bit about your station. So where, where was it? In, in your apartment or in some? Yes, it was in, it was in my apartment, in, uh, like I said, here in uh, Windsor Terrace. Um, I had the transmitter by the window. And, uh, and then I had a bedroom where the studio was. It was uh, my turntables, my, my, um, I had a few microphones and uh, my mixer. And um, we had dots, we had that machines. Uh, I had tons of records. I mean, we would get records from different artists, they would send us records, you know, so. And we had the um, antenna on the roof of the building. It's, everything is about height. So the higher you have the antenna, the more range you get. It's like a light bulb. You know, you take a light bulb and you, and you bring it down, it's less light, but once you bring it up, it, it spreads out wider and that's, that's your signal. So that's what we did. We we um, I had five foot poles, and we I think I did like twenty feet high. On, we, on top of the on, roof. On top of the so roof. So how tall was the building? It was a three story building. So uh, at first we we um, Dr. X, um, the guy that taught me everything about pirate radio, he we tried um, because we were on the hill, we had to try to go up as high as we could, and he had. Um, uh, an antenna which was uh, was like a bi-directional antenna so it points the power whatever direct all the power in, in one direction so he did a couple of bays and we tried that you know I wasn't really satisfied with that signal so I had a, a whip antenna and I we used that and that was much better I thought how, how far did you get? we went we were out far. I mean, it wasn't as as good as where you know Manhattan, but um, you can hear us in Queens. You can hear us in Manhattan. Um, you know, in you know Brooklyn, of course. Um, you know, down to maybe Coney Island. Wow. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know. So you were on for for three years, and I think one of the one of the you know savvy moves 
was you went on on Sunday nights. So what, right. so what was special about being on Sundays? Well, there, there was two reasons. One was because Hot 97, we, lit, we would go around Hot 97. Hot 97 was a hip-hop station. So, you know, we, we, you know, they would play like Caribbean music at that time. So we would play hip-hop at that time to try to uh, get the listeners from Hot 97. And the other thing was, you know, it's Sunday, you know, the FCC, you know, do they, are they out on Sunday? So we decided to do it on Sunday, you know, and, and you know, my thinking was, you know, FCC doesn't work on Sunday, so, you know, we'll do it on Sunday. <laughs> In the earlier days of pirate radio, there was like a protocol, there was an etiquette. Mm -hmm. There was like, if you were on right. a station, uh, you know, then you wouldn't get, you were supposed to stay off if someone right, else was right. on. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, a, a lot of times, you know, there were, there were stations that would call us up, you know, other stations, and they would say, oh, guy, you guys are great. What do you got? You know, we would share information on the transmitters that we had, you know. And, you know, um, one of the pirates' radios that, you know, he, was, he would get information, he started broadcasting all of us. And we tracked him down and... I shut them down, right? Because you, know, you know we we wanted to share the frequency with everybody, not you know, you know, uh, step on each other. You know? Right, right. I think you told me that um, you and Doctor X would go out. That's right, Doctor X. Yeah. And you sort of you would put on blue shirts, right. and you wouldn't disabuse the notion that you were from the FCC. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they didn't, I mean, we, we, I would have like a, like a scanner in my pocket, so, you know, they would say, ooh, these guys are official, they're uh, from the FCC or something. <laughs> they would shut off. If you're interested in hearing more, check out David's audio documentary on WBAD called Outlaws of the Airwaves. There's a link in our show notes, as well as more information about the Brooklyn Pirate Radio sound map. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered, and we rely on donations to keep us up and running. To support what we do, go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. Thanks for listening.